You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Denny O'Neill, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the show. This is part two of my interview with Denny O'Neill. If you missed part one, you should probably go back and check that because it kind of has his uh, origin story of how he came to comics. And uh, we talked for a long time. The reason we split this in two is because it's uh, it's two episodes worth of content. Um, this episode deals specifically with his time on Iron Man, as well as a little bit about a novel that he's currently in the process of publishing right now. It was such a pleasure to be able to talk to Denny O'Neill. He is a great guy. He has funny, fascinating stories and uh, and some great insight on Iron Man. So this is a companion episode to Iron Man Episode 10, Enemy Within, as well as Iron Man Episode 11, Duel of Iron. So enjoy this uh, talk with Dennis O'Neill. How did you get involved with Iron Man? Oh, the first Iron Man I did was a fill-in. I think Dave McLenny was probably still doing it, or may have been one of the other uh, teams. But um, I was kind of technophobic at the time, so I did a story in which Tony has to get out of the armor to save his own life and you know that that came and went and uh whoever had been doing it quit and yeah it must have been mark who was the editor of the book mark grunwald who asked if if i would like to do it well there was absolutely no reason to you know, uh, refuse, and Mark Grunewald was one of God's great men and nice guys and easy to work with, so I didn't realize how good an editor he was until I started working with him, and um, so then about six months or so into that, Run. I decided I wanted to do a story about Tony's alcoholism. I did not establish that. Dave McElhaney did. But right. I thought the 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 story... Well, I, I've had a little experience with alcoholism here and there. And my only problem with Dave's stuff, and I cannot emphasize enough that I, I respect what he did and I respect him as a writer but I thought uh, 
people might get the impression, and I think one of our bosses did want it to go this way, that to get past this addiction thing, all you got to do is slap yourself in the face. Ah, got to gotta go do stuff now and it would it's that quick and easy to get rid of a a well-rooted addiction well i i reason to believe that was not the case also that in itself was not decisive uh you always have to ask am i going to get a good story out of this Uh, we are not in the business of proselytizing against addictions or Republican presidents or, or anybody. We're in the the business of telling stories. And that's always got to be job one. Well, I mean, there's a, was obviously a lot of places we could go with a, a terribly flawed hero uh, who, like most drunks, does not for a long time does not admit it's a, it's a real problem and then in every alcoholic's life there's either that moment where you realize oh my god yeah my life is ruined and i ruined it and start back up into the sunlight or you die right. or you go to a hospital for the rest of your life uh it's that uh, stupid macho thing of all you have to do is, you know, suck it up, man up, and then you can get past any of this stuff. I guess alcohol uh, addiction is for sissies or girls. <laughs> Mark and I, who worked pretty much independently of anybody else when there was a, a company-wide stunt that all the heroes had to participate in, of course, we did that. We gave ourselves an out by putting Rhodey in the suit. So if we really needed some major league superhero stuff, we could cover that. Otherwise, we looked in on Tony going further and further down the hole. Are you are you saying that the the motivation for putting Rhodey in the suit was so to to fulfill like some some big crossovers was it secret war <laughs> i would rather forget that i was ever <laughs> involved in secret wars i i remember that there was a lot of secret wars input yeah and i'll get to that in a minute sure but uh as far as we were concerned no we were gonna do this long continuity and there was no reason not to do a long continuity there was certainly no rules forbidding such a thing and marvel and dc both were getting more and more into continuity at the time it was no longer the uh, the tail it was the dog uh and i think a lot of us didn't exactly know how to do it. Same with television. There was a learning curve there, and I right. think they're really on top of it now. What I did not know until Mike Carlin told me years later, Mike was uh, Mark's assistant, that one of our 
executives that we dealt most directly with, notice the omission of proper nouns, uh, hated what I was doing. And every month came in and uh, chastised Mark. And uh, I didn't know anything about this. The story ran the course that we had planned for it, and we went on to other things. I learned later that Mark was constantly under the sword on my behalf. I did not um, have a clue about that. Wow. Good guy. No. I, my, I, I spoke at Mark's memorial. He's been gone 20 years now. And I t told, I think, in public the first time that Mark was probably putting his his job on the line by refusing to fire me. Uh, but I never got a hint of that while he while he was alive. I had to learn this much later, and it was not always that way. I was not the big boss's favorite guy, and I to this moment I don't know why. I mean, since he has gone to another set of jobs and I am living in fat retirement here, uh, I've had a lot to, I mean, it would, I am tempted to pull the macho thing myself and say, oh, well, who cares what he thought? The only thing wrong with that is it would be a lie. For all those seven years I worked at that shop, I wanted desperately to please him. Uh, I wasn't prepared to, you know, embrace the Vietnam War uh, as a good thing or say hooray for racism or any of that. But within the normal day-to-day -day business, I really wanted him to like what I did. And we started off for the first six or eight months. I thought, this is the best job I ever had. This guy's a terrific boss. And then gradually that shifted somehow. I it sensed that I was getting in hot water. And a couple of times I asked to see him after work, and I went in. And, you know, I tried to lay the cards on the table. I know you're not happy with me, and I, uh, what can I do to change that? And I would leave after an hour or so thinking, well, this is not, you know, the happiest day of my life, but the universe does not owe me happiness. I, I, I can live with what we've discussed. And within a week or so, it was as though we hadn't discussed anything. He never, never attacked me directly, but I was working on another book, Daredevil, with a, a very different kind of editor. And in that case, when our boss complained, the editors came in and fired me. I was, thanks to people like Archie Goodwin, I was never really out of work, uh, freelance work for long. But anybody who was in major comic book business at the time probably has their own set of stories. 
uh, I don't know what happened to that individual, though he lives about a quarter of a mile from here. Uh-huh. Uh, Carl Potts and I were uh, having lunch in a, a local Indian restaurant, and uh, a waitress, you know, heard that we were talking about comic books. It was like three in the afternoon. Nobody, no other customers. So she came and told us that X, the person of whom I speak, had uh, dinner in that restaurant three times or so a week. And uh, thanks to Danny Fingeroth, I knew that he lived here in Nyack. and no longer lives at that address, but I think he's still local, and I wonder what happens when I run into him in Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. Mary Fran spoke to him uh, at some uh, charity event at uh, the school where she was teaching, and it was a nice, neutral conversation. But the... Iron Man thing, I tried not to make him the hero that I would have admired. I tried to, you know, give him a veneer of what kind of man reads Playboy. Uh, I would not, if I, if I were rich, probably be a Playboy guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, for years and years, one of my best friends was a fiction editor or a playboy uh, on coincidence. But no, I mean, you know, so he runs after women, and he, if he goes on a date the next day, the woman gets, you know, like 900 bunches of roses and big-time restaurants and trips to other places and and at the same time he had um, uh, you know this superhero mojo going uh, that would not have been my idea of hero though that is the kind of guy who might succumb to alcoholism and another aspect of that was alcoholics often wear masks I've just finished a novel about that is partially about that the way that uh, superhero uh, costumes is an almost perfect metaphor for all of us who behave differently in front of our bosses in front of our grandmothers in front of the guys down the block uh I'm not sure exactly who I am anymore because I've played so many of those roles. So that was not part of the intention, but I thought the the two elements, story elements, really meshed nicely. Uh, And um, I think that, well, one of the happy coincidences is when I saw the first Iron Man movie five or six years ago or whenever it was the main villain was played by Jeff Bridges Jeff Bridges is one of my idols Uh, what he does when he's not 
working, and he works a lot, is feed children, uh, hang out with a Zen master. Uh, like one of the m- most interesting, best useful guys there is. Yeah. And that was a nice coincidence, but then came the cherry on the cake. He played Obadiah Stane. Yeah. And that was a character I created. Wow. And how that did that... first we knew was the... Marvel was not as generous with things like movie passes and ancillary money then as they are now. I, I would have no complaints about them now. But uh, uh, Mary and I were pretty regular moviegoers, and we were sitting in the 21plex and watching a preview, and suddenly the words Obadiah Stain came off the screen. I don't always remember the stuff I do, but in that case, the other editors gave me such shit for that. Uh, Carl had made up a list of Denny's Next 75 Villains, Ooby-Dooby-Shoob, and <laughs> so on and so forth. Um, it was about that time that I really began to dig uh, bridges. I, I just coincidentally found out a lot of the stuff he did that I, I would have to approve of. Um, and then they they promised some ancillary payment, and they were a year getting to that, but eventually, you know, it, it all kind of worked out for us. Wow. I do not know what the phantom boss of whom I have been speaking thought about that. And I didn't, I don't think we got invited to a screening. We get invited to screenings all the time. And you usually weigh, well, okay, it's across the bridge and 25 miles. It'll be at least $40 to park. We'll drive through (laughs) Manhattan traffic at 5 o'clock and come out when it's dark and the roads past route, uh, past the Palisades Parkway will be black and dark and generally if you work out the arithmetic it, it's not worth it uh, for 10, 20 bucks I can go one mile uh, and you know sit in a very comfortable seat and have a very pleasant afternoon of course with the Batman movies to name three uh yeah, for obvious reasons, I did want to go to there. If I had gone to the uh, premiere party, which took place at the New York City Public Library after a screening that broke up about 10, I would have met possibly Donald Trump. So <laughs> that teaches me, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I knew he was coming to the party and he was not running for office yet. And I thought, well, everything I've seen about this guy in the media for the last 20 years tells me he's a jerk and I'd have nothing to say to him. And I kind of despise everything I know about him. So that was not really uh, much much bait for me. And besides... Mary can't drive at night because of an eye problem, and we did have 
25 or 30 miles in darkness and country roads to get past. So we acted like the old farts we are and just came home in bed by midnight. <laughs> nice. Uh, tell me a little bit more about Obadiah Stane and creating him. I remember nothing about him, Curtis, uh, yeah. <laughs> apart from the fact that I needed a villain, and you always try and... Well, one of the basic mistakes I made during one of my runs on Batman was to have Batman fight crooks. Well, he's Batman, for God's sake. No, who cares if he goes against a pickpocket? Uh, the villains have to have have to, in, in a way, wear their villainy on their sleeve. And some writers, I'm thinking one guy in particular, like to do the Chester Gould thing of giving them, you know, funny names that reflected something about them. It, it's an okay technique. It has to be all of a piece with the rest of the story, but it's all right. Uh, I just wanted to give this new ultimate villain for Tony Stark, a memorable name. It uh, The words Obadiah Stane, I probably got Obadiah from the, the Old Testament because I would steal from that from time to time. It's a good <laughs> source <laughs> for stories. Yeah. Uh, and the rest, I don't know, it may, it may be the artist who figured out the visuals. I really don't remember. The artist was um, Luke McDonald. Can you tell me a little bit about working with him? As always with these things, I really didn't work with him. I knew him. Uh, I think that it was probably... Whoever had been doing the book early, could that have been Bob Layton? Before, uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, he went on to other things, and I, it would have almost certainly been... Mark, who, you know, that was an editor's job. You have these slots to fill, go fill them. So apart from the fact that I would see Luke and his brother occasionally, we had no real interaction. I wrote scripts, he drew pictures. Pretty simple then. <laughs> Simpler the better. Yeah. I mean, people always assume that you, you worked with the artist, even with Green Lantern, Green Arrow. I think Neil and I probably spent a couple of... One afternoon, I remember, we went around and talked to uh, uh, drug rehab guys. But we didn't work together in any meaningful way. I wrote scripts, he drew pictures. There's a little bit more to it than that, but I don't feel like Pressing anybody right now. So, right. with Frank Miller, on the other hand, um, the most of the time we worked together, we really did work together. We would go either to Smokey's Real Pit Barbecue on Ninth and Twenty Fourth in Manhattan, long gone, or uh, you know, one of the restaurants in Midtown near the the office, and we would talk out the story, almost the way Julie Schwartz did it in 1945. Uh, panel for page for page, panel for panel. Uh, walking around Greenwich Village, we both lived near there. 
It's still one of my favorite places. And, you know, talk about the story we were going to do. It's never particularly easy for me to talk about work with another professional. Uh, but in those instances, it was a very natural way to relate to the other guy. Well, that's good. Can you tell me a little bit more about Rhodey and your approach to writing him as Iron Man as opposed to writing Tony as Iron Man? I don't know that we had an approach. We had the idea to give uh, Tony a, a very close associate. We had the idea to make him black. And then we kind of let the, the plot dictate where he went. I mean, we knew he had to be a good guy, uh, and that had nothing to do with the black thing. It was just, if he's going to be your main hero, he has to behave like a hero. If that's not an ironclad rule, it's right next door to an ironclad rule. And uh, I think that Mark probably approached him really in terms of plot rather than in characterization, uh, which is not a bad way to work all the time if you can, if you have that luxury. And the problem with being coming at it strictly from a plot end is often um, uh, are a characterization end is, first of all, they're in a in, integrated uh, a plot is what the character does and secondly sometimes somebody who really is into the characters and got into comics through that door tends to neglect the plot or especially in the 80s plots were were you know often the minor element and um very often, this I would would have probably did consider a cardinal sin. Somebody decides, okay, I'm going to do an 11-issue continuity. So, page one, panel one, hero guy flying across the sky, and you ask them, how is it going to end, and they have no idea. They're just make up, decide ahead of time how many pages it will take to tell a story that they haven't plotted out and don't even know what it's going to be about yet. <laughs> uh, some guys, I mean, in many ways, the, the 80s were the, the treasure time, and guys, uh, you know, would take on five assignments, and then uh, they were constantly under deadline pressure as a result of that. So I'm going to knock off two pages of potato salad, man, and get those in the mail to the, that editor. Then I'm going to do page and a half of salad, man, and uh, get that in the mail and keep juggling it. Well, I'm not going to say that no writer on earth could make that work because... Isaac Asimov did, kind of. He had three typewriters, and he would swivel from one to the other when he got tired of doing one job. Is that so? Yeah, yeah. There are others. Uh, I mean, when I teach writing, I can't teach rules or how to do it. 
my favorite detective story writer of the last century was probably Rex Stout, a brilliant man, lived near here, though I didn't know that at the time. And uh, he had these characters. Nero Wolf was the fattest detective in Manhattan who never left his house, but always solved crimes from his living room or from his office. And Archie Goodwin, who had nothing to do with our Archie Goodwin, though, once upon a time, an editor said he'd have to get another pseudonym because that one, you know, Archie Goodwin, Rex Stout was there first. But uh, he would go investigate on Wolf's behalf, and they would solve the crime and have dinner. He was also gourmet. Uh, the way that Stout did those 50-something novels was to write the name of the main characters and their jobs on the back of an envelope or on a piece of scrap paper, and then sit down exactly 38 days later. He put the manuscript in an envelope and sent it to his agent and didn't see it until it was in print again and never made a mistake. So I wish I could say that there was an ironclad way to approach this stuff. What I've found is if it works for you, it's right. And what we're talking about is go back and read some of those stories and decide if they do work as stories. Uh, sometimes there's a subplot that started and trails off never really ends. Um, it's working without a net, and why would you want to do that if you didn't have to? I'm not saying that you must abide by every comma that's in your original plot. No, I've always told guys, uh, if you have a better idea than what we just discussed halfway through the job, by all means, but t let me know what you're going to do. I don't want any surprises. Uh, let me know what the changes you plan to make, and I don't think there was ever an instance where I said, no, you can't do that. But just to think, well, you know, I'm going I'm to think of an ending. Well, re remember that TV show, Lost. They had all this neat stuff, and we all looked and said, how are they possibly going to tie this all together two right. years from now? And the answer is they didn't. Yeah. They couldn't. <laughs> it was one of the lamest endings in the history of drama. Yeah. Well, that same kind of dynamic work with, uh, with comics. Archie once said that uh, that was a decade where there was no quality control in the comic book business. Got an assignment, and if you were recognized professional, uh, that was that. And when I went back to being a freelancer, I, in one case, I didn't understand how something could work. Uh, the director was also the writer, and he knew in his head exactly how it would go. Uh, and I asked the editor to please find out and call me and I can probably do the rewrite in an hour and when the stuff came out the 
editor had seen no need to do that. It didn't seem important to him to deal with a story point. And that was kind of the attitude. Uh, the editors would much prefer to communicate by a computer than to sit down over coffee and talk about the thing you're going to do. That was the way I always found it most comfortable. And one of the common complaints, I think, around Manhattan publishing is editing is becoming a lost art. Nobody quite knows what they're supposed to do. Having said that, there are two or three editors I've worked with at companies that it was a great experience. That's what writing can be when everything is working right. But generally, it's they, they that part of the job, unless they choose to do it and make it part of their own agenda, I don't think it would be required of them. I don't think I will ever have uh, occasion to test that again because the last time I worked for those people they really put me through a dance uh, with regard to deadlines they kept changing their mind about what they wanted and that's okay but as somebody who's been doing this for 50 years if I were six months into the business I would have to take that I, <laughs> 50 years in the business I don't Right. Yeah. You've you've earned it. <laughs> well, it's it's the way to get the job done. Alfred Bester uh had a saying that I often quote, among professionals the job is boss. It's the story that is important, not your byline, not making your girlfriend like what you do. Get the job done and do it as well as you possibly can. You will be given parameters, deadlines, things you can't say, things you can't touch. Okay, you're a professional. You deal with that. It's part of the job. Right. Moving back over to Iron Man a little bit, can you uh, tell me a little bit about um, your conclusion um, to the Rhodey storyline, it was uh, you had introduced Shaman. Do you remember uh, hey, what kind of character? Shaman. He it was uh, like a Native American person to Ooh. who was guiding Rhodey. I have. Well, I wouldn't put it past me because in my private life I was getting interested in that kind of thing. But no, that the there are two or three things over a course of 50 years that are still painful. And that page is one of them. Oh, okay. Because Mark and I had been working for over two years at that point, up to a climax. We had that figured out way ahead of time. Yeah. And the letter decided that he would be funny and make, make it gibberish. The most crucial panel in the story. So that's how it went out. And it didn't ruin the story, and we got a lot of uh, praise for it, but he just thought it would be cute to do that. And that That is 50 ways inexcusable. Well, that's, that's, that's strange. 
Yeah, that's one of the reasons I, I, I am generally very happy with what I've done for a living. I think it's being the Batman editor was the best job in the world. Right. But there were things like that from time to time that just drive you crazy. By the time you know about it, it's in print. Right now, at this very moment, I was going to spend today doing the stuff you do to launch a novel. And yesterday, at about this time, something occurred to me. Nobody has ever dealt with, in, in this project, which has been dragging on for six years, nobody's dealt with questions of copyright. Well, what the hell? I I'm probably don't have anything to worry about, but I do know a lawyer, and he's a very good lawyer, and uh, I've always had pleasant dealings with him, so why don't I call him? And I called him, Harris Miller. Explain things to him, and he, looking at his computer as we talked, uh, read the relevant material to me, and it's a good thing I called. Really? Uh, the characters was Captain Power, and I, I picked it because it uh, sounds so generic. Turns out there are about three copyrights still active. Doesn't mean anybody's doing anything with them, but it means that somebody owns the right to do something with them. The chances are that nobody would have noticed, nobody would have cared, but a couple of people I trust said, but they might. Somebody right. might take it. It happens a lot. It happened with poor Gary Friedrich a few years ago. Some lawyer decides I've got nothing to lose uh, by taking a shot. I will just ruin my client's life for a few years. But uh, so <clears throat> at about noon yesterday, Captain Power became uh, Captain Mighty. Oh, man. And, uh, and uh, that sounds simple enough, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, we've had the cover by Bill Zinkevich for about a year now. That has to be changed. Oh, no. The great cover. And it'll still be a great cover, only it'll say uh, Captain Mighty instead of Captain Power. Captain Power, soldier of the future, to be exact. I'm told it was a terrible television show. <laughs> uh, uh, and then I will have to write the ancillary copy, the, you know, thank yous. And the, we, way back when we started on this project, we collected several uh, uh, endorsements from celebrities. Well, some of that has to be, you know, recast. The proofreader has to do her job all over again. So, as of now, we don't know when we will next get to this job. It won't be next week, I'm warned. Just too many, too many efforts have to be coordinated, and it all has to come together at the same time. <clears throat> so that's an example of... Uh, writing stuff and publishing stuff that you don't you you don't hear about it, and it's a huge source of grief. 
I am so sick of this fucking novel. <laughs> it seems like the universe is not going to let me stop writing on it. Wow. What, can you um, tell me a little bit more about your novel? What are you... Uh... No, one of the problems I had, uh, I'm going to have Amazon publish it. Uh, and I've, I've published, actually, I think I've published a dozen books. Two of them were bestsellers. So I thought this would be real easy. I just write the book and somebody would want to publish it and that's it. The book buzz business has changed drastically. And one of my closest friends is Charlie Kochman, who is the guy who edits the Wimpy Kid books who, that have sold 30 million. Right. And Charlie has become probably one of the most important Manhattan editors. He can't publish this. But he did warn me that nobody knows what to do. We don't know what the future of the book business is. We don't know if there will be bookstores 10 years from now. Nobody has figured out, I mean, publishing is, under optimum circumstances, a fairly complicated business. But when I wrote a hardcover book 20 years ago, it was a fairly complicated business and I had to work very hard, And but we knew what the goals were and we had some idea of how to reach them. That's no longer the case. And the other thing that handicaps my sad little venture is you have to approach publishers and booksellers with a category. You just don't say, I'm going to write a detective story. You say, I'm going to write a detective story about a retired school teacher in a small town who lives with her nephew. And uh, we can have these three, if this goes to series, here's the next three plots. Uh, you, They have to have some place, or they think they have to have some place in the bookshelf, in the store, where they can put it. Or if you're Amazon, <clears throat> kind of the same thing. They assume that, you know, people are going to look for detective stories if that's what they like. So you, the book that you're going to publish has to fit into some recognizable category. Now, some of the stuff I've most enjoyed reading in the last year, the last 10 years, didn't do that. But it's it's very rare. The whole they don't insist on one submission at a time. Multiple submissions happily accepted. They don't feel any need to return the book that they're not going to publish. We learned that early on when months and months and months went by, and Mary Fran finally called the publisher, and the receptionist said, "Oh yes, we have that. Click." So oh, really? we later found out that the procedure is you don't return it. And if somebody else publishes it, well, you just quietly forget about it. And if somebody else, I was, as one person told me, you don't want to be the guy who turned down the, the bestseller. There, I met a guy at a party once who was the, the guy in New York publishing who turned down Nabokov's Lolita. That was his claim to fame. Wow. He was the guy that rejected. <laughs> no. oh. <laughs> Don't want to have that. So it just disappears into the ether unless somebody decides to publish it. Right. So uh, 
Chuck Dixon has published 13 books this way. Scott Peterson has published three. I'd always thought that self-publishing was the mark of an amateur, but uh, you know, because you couldn't, it wasn't good enough to publish. Yeah. I have been talked out of that. I could go on beating my head against the door. Uh, one of the most successful books of the last hundred years was Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It got 26 rejections before a new editor at one of the houses said, it's this sort of thing that made me go into publishing. We have to publish this. And they gave him a minimum advance, but it's never been out of print. Wow. So you don't know. I have a whole kind of list of stories like that. But uh, it's not that that part of it is not. Well, actually, nothing is important at this point. <laughs> I'm going to go forward with it, despite some of my own questions about quality, because we've put on this, Mary Fran and I and my son have put in so much work already. And it looks like it'll only take another day. Okay, that's good. As I say that, I think, hear the universe laughing. <laughs> How many times have you said that, O'Neill? <laughs> wow, well, I looked forward to uh, seeing it actually get to print, that's for sure. Yeah, one of the things, well, one of my friends who works mostly in television was once a an uh, art director for a publishing company. He pointed out that most books are bought off uh, Amazon's uh, website. So it is very important that the images be bold and that there be a lot of color contrast because that's probably what most people are going to see if they buy your book. But as far as categorizing it, <laughs> good luck. Yeah. Uh, you could say it's about one Missouri writer's battles with alcoholism. That would not be a lie. You could, you could say it's about that same kid struggles with the Catholic school system. That would not be a lie. You can say that it's about... A comic book writer's three of his characters who, through something, I won't ruin the book for you, through some kind of stupid editorial ledger domain, be, each becomes a separate person, and they all go their separate ways. So that makes it a fantasy. One of them has a spaceship that makes it science fiction. <laughs> uh, there's a love story in there with a happy ending. Well... Uh, I didn't see my wife for 30 years because we had broken up while we were in college after four years of reasonably steady dating. And um, she found out where I was living, and she sent me a letter, and we got together, and we were married a year later. That, that happens to the hero of the book. A lot of stuff in real life does not happen. I mean, in real life, I have four brothers. This character doesn't have any because what, what purpose would they serve for the story I'm trying to tell? They would merely be a distraction. And in real life, that's pretty much what they were. I just found <laughs> out from, well, you know, we've, my brother Tom visited me once in the 
40 or 50 years that he came, that uh, since he came. And I thought that was just Tom, you know, place to crash in Manhattan. I found out last week that he came on a mission from my father, who knew that I was going into detox a lot and was in really serious trouble. Paul Levitz didn't expect me to live. And wow. so he came to, you know, kind of check me out. I didn't know that. Uh, I found out that one of the, my uncles who was considered close to a saint, everybody loved him. He did no wrong. He was a solid member of the community. Um, and when he was in high school, he knocked up a girl. Nobody ever mentioned that. But that obviously had an effect on the family, and if I was writing a book about that family, it would have a place there. Well, Denny, I thank you for chatting with us today um, for the second time um, and, and for sharing your insight on Iron Man. Since you've worked so heavily in Marvel, um, I might I may call on you again to uh, to to get some of your insights and in some of your other books because you just have such a, a fascinating career. Yeah, I'm I'm watching on streaming a Marvel Netflix movie in in the evenings. Uh, Iron Fist, which is was one of the characters I worked on. Yeah, I just started watching that yesterday. I wrote about yesterday. him in my column and found out an awful lot about stuff I thought I knew cold. Uh, I was, for example, wrong about who created him. And just yesterday I found out that Marvel was trying to get the rights to the TV show, Master of Kung Fu, the uh, David Carradine thing. Yeah. And when that fell through, uh, Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, was their fallback position. They were going to publish a Kung Fu something. And that's what it ended up being. And the uh, Iron Fist was a very different thing. I think the the movie's pretty good. It's not going to ever make Citizen Kane worry. <laughs> but, right. Uh, the acting is good. The stunts are much better than martial arts are on television usually. So... Little surprise! I thought this would be a week with nothing to do, and instead, <laughs> I'm bound in, in the middle of publishing hassles. But I have a good TV show to watch. Well, that's good. Yeah, the balance so, is there. <laughs> the universe at the end of the day is good. Nice. Uh, if I can help you any other way, let me know.